W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations in Newport Ritchie, Crystal River, and Tampa. Up next is Verse by Verse. Sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Remember the gospel that came to you. And you were first saved in the dynamics of salvation. And before you settled into this ritualistic thing called church, before you started playing games, this formal, stereotypical, going through the motions religion. Welcome again to Verse by Verse. In today's class, Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, continues our study of the church at Sardis from the book of Revelation and the letters to the seven churches. Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3 as Steve begins our class. Secondly, a dying church does nothing about the present because it's too preoccupied with the past. It does not seize the present opportunities to reach new people for Christ. There's no new life coming into the church. No new and creative ministries because the church resists change. We didn't do this 40 years ago. Why should we do it now? Resist change. It's living in the past. But listen, while the word of God never changes, cultures change, attitudes change, beliefs in society change, and a church has to be open to not certainly changing the message, never, but new ways to communicate the gospel. And if a church doesn't do that, it will die. It will become irrelevant. It'll be talking only to itself. A church that fails to to change and adjust its methods to where people are at will eventually find themselves talking to no one but themselves. They'll be answering questions that nobody's asking. Irrelevant. Listen, we have to be a church that never changes the message of the Word of God. Never. But we have to be a church that can change and adapt to the world that we live in. As I just finished a marvelous book, and I told you about this, one of my new heroes is John Newton. Most of us know John Newton only as the hymn writer of Amazing Grace, but he was an amazing and wonderful pastor. And one of the things he did as a pastor, and he was an Anglican pastor, an evangelical pastor in the Church of England. He was not a Baptist. He was not an independent, although he had great love for Baptists and independents, but he was in the Church of England. And one of the things he would do for his congregation is, in addition to giving them a sermon, he wrote hymns for them. And those hymns were designed to be teaching tools for them. Those hymns were filled with theological truth that coincided with his sermon. Amazing Grace was one of those hymns. And by the way, he did not come up with the tune, just the lyrics. John Newton never lived to see that that tune would catch on with that song. And literally millions have listened to that hymn, Amazing Grace, and the amazing testimony of a man who was changed by the grace of God. But that song was just one of many. In fact, there are books that he wrote, along with a well-known poet, William Cowper. They wrote hymns together. He was criticized for that. Do you know why? Because it was almost unheard of to sing hymns that went beyond the Psalms. Everybody else in the Church of England was singing just the Psalms. John Newton said, I will do what's best for my people, and I will write hymns that will help them 
to learn. Now, there's a man who understood that you have to adapt methodology to reach people. The people loved it. Many of those hymns were written especially for the children of his church to bring biblical truth down to their level. All I'm saying is that we have to make sure that we never get stuck with tradition singing the same old stuff because they sang it 50 years ago, or the same methods because this is what we've always done, that eventually becomes a dying church. Because what happens in a church like that is that people who were there and who love it begin to either die off or move away or leave. And so what you're left with, eventually the new people coming into the church are not born again. They're not born again because nobody has witnessed to them. The gospel isn't going out with much vibrancy. Nobody's really concerned about reaching unsaved. And then you have a church that's filled with unsaved, and they become the new leaders of the church. And eventually, then you have a church at Sardis, a church that is dead. Thirdly, a dying church is a self-complacent church. It's a soft church that's not on the front lines of evangelism. They don't really care about missions, about evangelism. Everything's about them. It becomes a spirit of self-indulgence. First, it's feed me. Just feed me the word of God. Feed me. That's a wonderful thing to be fed the word of God, but you've got to give it out. But then it also becomes a church where it's all about me. The programs have to be about me. And so you lose your focus of being a discipler of others and a global Christian and concern for the the lostness of people's souls. That's apparently what happened at Sardis. And that's why I said nobody was persecuting this church. Why would you persecute a church that's dead? They're no threat to you. And that's why I say a church like this eventually dies because people either die physically or they change churches in our day and age and the new people coming in are not born again. And eventually, as I said, they become the leaders of the church. And, you know, you have churches that started off well, and now most churches never even preach the gospel. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. So we need to listen to what the Lord has to say so that years from now, by God's grace, Lakeside is still a vibrant church, unless the Lord raptures us. But if he doesn't come, at that point, we, by God's grace, still need to be a church teaching the word of God. Long after I'm gone and our present elders are gone, a church that is alive because the gospel is proclaimed, the word of God is taught, and we care about missions, and we care about evangelism. We care about souls, not simply ourselves. So this was the church at Sardis, dwelling on the past glory while they lived in present decay and very satisfied to remain there. And that's the problem. The church was satisfied. And there's always the possibility, as I said, that Lakeside and any evangelical church today can become like that if we're not careful. So we need to live in the present and plan for the future and pray and think and do all kinds of things. But this is one of the reasons why it's important. I'll be giving the annual State of the Church address. This is an address that I give every year in which we have to think about, evaluate ourselves. Where are we? What's happened this year? Where are we going? What do we need to change? Never stay stagnant. So if we find ourselves beginning to die, then what can we do to recover? 
What do we do to recover? Well, Jesus speaks to this church at Sardis, and he tells them what they can do to recover. So we move from the correspondent to the church, Christ, who has the Spirit of God and gives life, to the condition of the church, it was dead, in need of life. Now, what's the correction to this church? Well, what does he say is the remedy to this situation? Verses 2, and then a little bit into verse 3. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Let's stop there. Apparently, this church was not beyond total hope. There must have been, in fact, there were still some believers there, predominantly lost folks, but some believers. And it's to the true believers that Jesus addresses his correction. There is a fivefold opportunity he gives them to rekindle the fire in their church. Five steps to take to this church to rekindle the fire. Number one, he says, wake up. Wake up. This is a wake up call. Wake up, which means open your eyes and take a good critical look at yourselves. You're stagnant, you're smug, you're dead, you're filled with unbelievers. Wake up. See, the very first step towards renewal is an honest awareness of what the church is. That's why I say I always give the state of the church address. This is my way of saying these are the burdens on my heart, and we have to have an honest, critical evaluation of ourselves. And not just pat ourselves on the back and say, everything is wonderful. Everything is not wonderful. We're always dealing with sinners and changes that need to be made. And you always want to be open to what the Spirit of God is doing and leading. So we continue to evaluate our spiritual condition. We always need to do that. We need to balance it too and not only be negative and say, this is what we're not doing. There's a lot of good things that we're doing. But the city of Sardis, remember, was twice overtaken by the enemy because no one was on guard. So Jesus tells the church to be on guard, wake up, and take notice. Look around, see what's going on. Secondly, he says the second step after you wake up is strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God, meaning they're not fulfilled. Now, this is, this is a challenging statement to understand, but I take it that the things that remain were their works were their works, the activities of the true believers. And this apparently is a call for them to do their works as the fruit of the Spirit. Do their works unto the Lord. Their works were on the verge of being dead, just like the church, but there was hope. They needed to fan the flames. In other words, I take it, he's saying, have a commitment to Christ. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. He lives in you, and make sure what you're doing is the expression of the Spirit of God in you and the fruit of the Spirit at work through you. So strengthen the things that remain. In other words, he's saying, you who do know Christ in this dead church, you need to make sure that you're awake and walking in the Spirit. Third, he says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. In other words, remember back to what God has done in your life, how he's transformed you by grace. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel that came to you. And you were first saved in the dynamics of salvation and 
before you settled into this ritualistic thing called church, before you started playing games, this formal, stereotypical, going through the motions religion, remember what it once was when the gospel invaded your heart. And then he says, number four, and keep it. Remember what it was, what you received, what you heard, and keep it. Remember, in other words, the joy of salvation and hold on to it. Don't let the gospel message go. Make sure that the gospel message is central to the message of the church. Make sure that you never abandon the gospel. It is of first importance. You know, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. I gave you the gospel, which was of first importance of all the things that we preach. Every Sunday, all the things that are taught in Sunday school classes and children's ministry, all of that, there is nothing more important than the gospel message. Everything else we have to say stems from the gospel message. So Jesus says, keep it, hold on to it. That's the problem. You let it go. And then finally, he says, number five, and repent. Change your mind, change your ways, your outlook. Get back on track. Get back to the way it once was when the church was alive. Now, this is addressed to a church, but it obviously has application to individuals. So if you've become spiritually lethargic, you need to follow these steps of renewal. Wake up and see things as they really are in your life evaluate yourself. Look at yourself. Examine yourself. And whatever evidences of life there is in your behavior, strengthen that. Fan the flames. Make sure you get back to obedience and remember how your relationship with Jesus used to be, fresh and alive. And just hold on to that. Don't let it go. Don't let anyone take it from you. And keep repenting. Complete change of mind and heart and outlook of life. So that's our Lord's corrections of this church. But what if a local church does not take these steps to change? As many churches haven't. That's why they become liberal and formal and liturgical and they don't preach the gospel. What if a church doesn't take these steps of renewal? Well, we move from the correspondence of this letter to the condition of the church, to the correction that Christ gives the church, now to the consequences for the church if they do not take the Lord's correction. Notice the end of verse three. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you'll not know at what hour I will come to you. Jesus said, if you don't wake up and repent, then I'm coming to you like a thief in the night. Now he's not talking about the rapture. He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about coming to them in the sense that They don't expect it, but he's going to judge them. He's going to judge them. He's going to judge them by putting them out of existence. Now, why would a church not repent when it's a dead church? Why wouldn't they repent? For the same reasons that the city of Sardis was unprotected. Pride. They didn't realize how bad things really were oblivious to their weaknesses. They thought they were invincible. They were indifferent. And they thought of themselves as being above their enemies. They didn't need to change. That's exactly why this church did not repent or would not repent. There is some evidence in church history that the church for a little while continued. So maybe they did repent. But a church that does not repent and heed this is a church that thinks that they don't need to, that everything is fine. 
See, the church that doesn't repent doesn't recognize its true spiritual condition, that it's weak and dying and dead. And Jesus tells them, if you don't repent, I'm just coming and finishing you off. You're already dead. I'm just going to come and finish the job. I'm going to put you out of your misery. Today, that part of the world is dominated, as you know, by Islam, not Christianity. So he comes to judge his church. But what about the remnants of the church at Sardis? True believers. There were some. This church had some who believed. What would happen to them? Well, the Lord, this is the fifth point that he gives. He speaks of courage for the remnant. They were given some promises to give them some courage to carry on. Notice verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. First of all, he's, understand this, that Sardis, the city, was known for its wool industry. In other words, its clothing industry. So this would register in their thinking. You have some who have not soiled their garments. And in pagan religion, people who wore soiled garments, stained garments, it means, were disqualified from worshiping their gods because they felt like it dishonored their deities. Jesus is saying there are a few Christians at Sardis who had not soiled their garments. That is to say, they had remained uncontaminated from the dead society and the dead church they were in. They were alive spiritually. They had remained pure in their devotion to Christ. They could have been deeper, yes. They could have been more vibrant, but they had, for the most part, remained pure in their devotion to Christ. And as a result, notice what we read as we continue in verse 4. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. White in the Bible always refers to purity and righteousness, especially in a context like this. Later in Revelation 7, 14, we read the same thing of white garments. It means that they're not righteous in themselves, but they have been clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, symbolized by white garments. And then notice what the Lord says as a wonderful promise that gives great encouragement to these folks and to all of us. Verse 5, he who overcomes, meaning believers, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. All of this points to the same thing, that of living forever in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, what's amazing, though, is that people can read this verse and actually come up with the complete opposite interpretation of what it means. There are many who read this verse and say, oh, We could lose our salvation because he could take us out and he could remove our names from the book of life. That's not what he's saying here at all. This is just the opposite. This is just the opposite. This isn't a threat to have your name erased from the book of life. Rather, this is a promise that it will never happen. Read it again. Let me read it to you. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name. Notice that not erase his name from the book of life. And I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He's talking about believers now. This isn't saying you can lose your salvation. This is saying just the opposite. You'll never lose your salvation. Now, let me explain what he's talking about culturally. In John's day, kings would keep a register of their citizens. They all had a register of the citizens of their city. If a person committed a crime against the state, that person's name was removed from the register. 
he lost his citizenship. Likewise, if the person died, his name also was removed from the register. Now, what Jesus is saying is simply this. While a human king may blot your name out of his book, I will never blot your name out of my book. Folks, this is a promise of security, living with him forever. And that's why he said, I will confess you before my father and before the holy angels. He had said that in Matthew 10, 32. If you confess me, which all believers do, we confess Christ and I will confess you. This is a statement of a believer's future fellowship forever with the Lord. These promises are assuring us that these who were not dead spiritually will live forever with Christ. And then finally, there is the challenge to this church, and it's a challenge to us as well. Notice verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not simply to the church at Sardis, but to the churches, all the churches, which includes us. Listen, he's saying, to what the Spirit of God has to say to this church, because years from now, you could be this church if you don't take heed to this. The key, folks, is to not grow comfortable, to not grow comfortable in the church, to not live in the past glory, but to seize present opportunities to proclaim the gospel, to keep Christ and the gospel central, and to make sure that we don't turn inward and and want to have everything for us, but to make sure that we are turning outward to share the gospel. The gospel is shared. People come to faith in Christ. They come into the church. They're discipled. They lead others to Christ, and on and on it goes. So let's make sure that, by God's grace, we never become a dead church, and let's make sure that you, as you examine yourself, that you're not spiritually dead, that you really do know Christ, because if you do know him, you're going to be with him forever. Let's bow for prayer. If you have never trusted Christ, I urge you, make sure you know him. Make sure you're not dead spiritually. How do you know if you're alive spiritually? There'll be evidence in your life. You'll have a love for the Lord. You'll have a desire to obey him, even though your obedience is incomplete. You'll have a love for God's people. You'll want fellowship. You'll want to be around God's people. You'll confess your sin. You'll hate your sin. Be a paradox. You'll love it. You'll hate it as well. You'll confess it. You'll repent of your sin. These are all marks of a true believer. But if there's no desire to obey, no confession of sin, no conviction of sin, if there's no love for the brethren, no love for Christians, then you're just not a believer. And you need to come to Christ and have life. Otherwise, you die, you die in your sins, and you'll be lost forever. Don't do that. Make sure you know him. And let's make sure that we share the gospel with others. Father, thank you for this precious passage of Scripture. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking so boldly, so honestly, so appropriately, so fittingly to this dead church. Lord, we don't want to be like Sardis. We love our church. We love what you're doing here. We love what you've done in the past, but we don't want to rest on the past, Lord. We, we want to be open to change that you bring about. We want to make sure, Lord, that you're always exalted. The gospel is always proclaimed, that we love the gospel, that we preach it not only to the unsaved, but to ourselves as well. But Lord, help us 
to have a passion for souls. Help us in our life, in our lifestyles, in our ministries here, in missions, both at home and abroad, to always share the gospel with others, to care about the people of this world. I pray to that end, Lord, and I pray that you help us to take heed to what we've learned tonight, and by your grace, may we be a thriving church until Jesus takes us home. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining our class today. If you would like a CD of the entire message, you may order one by calling Verse by Verse at 727-239-0306 during office business hours. Our website is versebyverseradio.org where you can listen to this study again and download it free of charge. Call 727-239-0306 to order a CD of the entire message on the church at Sardis. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside.